All right. Uh, I'm excited to give this talk. Um, and I'm excited to be in Bangalore. This is my very first time coming to India. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people told me about Bangalore before I came here is that Bangalore is known as the Silicon Valley of India, uh, which I thought was a perfect context. Um, not only am I coming from Silicon Valley of California, um, I think this, the Silicon Valley context is, is perfect for this topic on innovation. <clears throat> because at, in Silicon Valley, you have a lot of startup companies. Um, and the culture at a startup company is one that really encourages innovation. I actually love working for startups. Um, before I moved to California, I had never really worked for a startup. But moving out there, I worked for two different startups. And the culture is a lot different. At a startup, you're maybe, you may be the only technical writer. Uh, or maybe you have one or two colleagues. But by and large, at a startup, um, there's not a lot of legacy documentation. Uh, you, may be the, um, you may be the person, or you probably are the person, who's defining the whole documentation strategy. What platform you're going to use, how you're going to deliver documentation, what kinds of uh, deliverables you're going to actually uh, put out there, uh, how you're going to interact with people. And so this is a, it's an opportunity to kind of venture into whatever experiment you wanted. Um, and this is the case at, at my current company. Uh, they, they really were looking for somebody who could take their documentation out of the PDF world and put it online um, and give it a kind of a, a modern web interface. And, and they said, <clears throat> you know, we, we really don't have any we don't have any technical constraints. We want you to you know, think outside the box. Think about uh, what you would like to do, dream it, envision it, and then we'll figure out the details. And so I love this kind of mentality at a, at a startup where you have this open road for documentation. You can take whatever path you want, of course, analyzing your, your requirements and so forth, but you're, you're not constricted and constrained by this. Well, as I was kind of trying to figure out the, the right path for documentation at, at this company, um, I, I, I remarked that, that, that there's kind of a dissatisfaction I've felt about a lot of different help authoring methods. Um, and Mark Baker, one of my favorite bloggers online, every page is page one, summed up this dissatisfaction well. He said, he was talking about my journey, as he called it, uh, my, my forays into help authoring tools, to wikis, to structured authoring, and he says, as to what your journey says, I think it says that all the current models of tech-com development are deeply unsatisfactory in one way or another. Deeply unsatisfactory, it, it's, a, it's a phrase that actually resonated with a lot of other people in the comments and they chimed in and, and also felt kind of this dissatisfaction. Um, and wh Why is there dis this dissatisfaction? I may be kind of alone uh, in this perspective, but I, I think there are a lot of other people who feel that, that a lot of the methods are they're limiting in some way. They don't let you do what you want to do. Um, and you see, you see right now in the industry this tremendous fragmentation of tools, or, or maybe fragmentation is a negative word, it's a, a diversity of tools. If you were to, to survey uh, uh, 100 people in the room what, what kind of method and approach they're using for documentation, I doubt there would be a common standard. Um, at least that's not been my experience. Everybody's using something different because they're trying to find this, this way of doing documentation that is not deeply, uns 
not deeply unsatisfactory. So at my company, we had this, this, this initiative called Think Big Thursdays. Um, and this was sort of unprecedented. Uh, one of the executives felt that in order to really move the needle forward, as he put it, uh, we needed to carve out a chunk of time where we could sit down and execute on all these great ideas that we had. Uh, they, they did some, some experimenting and research and found that people decided they didn't really have enough time to do all of these innovative ideas that they wanted to do in whatever roles they had uh, to, to move the company forward in significant ways. So you rarely get this sort of opportunity where you have whole days uh, just dedicated to kind of uh, projects that you think are um, exciting and special and are going to have a lot of rewards. And so as I was kind of thinking about docs and doc strategy, we had many, many conversations. Uh, and, and it was a time to be innovative. Now, in order to understand innovation, I want to take a step back and, and provide a little bit of a framework and, and story about innovation itself, just to understand what it is. And there's a, this is my absolute favorite story about innovation. It's the story of the telegraph and the telephone. This is a, a depiction of Alexander Graham Bell and an early model of the telephone. And when he was developing the telephone, the first models were really pretty poor. Uh, it was kind of like two soup cans with, a, with string connected to each other from 20 feet away, you know, staticky. You couldn't hear very much. It wasn't of good experience. And so the telegraph companies looked at his phone uh, and he, he had presented this, this telephone as an invention. And, you know, do you want to buy this patent and, and, and this invention and, and take it to your company? And they saw it and they thought, Nobody's gonna, you know, use the telephone. This is such poor technology. You know, people really are happy with the telegraph, and it's so much faster. It's more efficient, and we've, you know, we've got a network set up, and so they, they declined it. They didn't. They never bought his telephone. Well, you know, the telephone continued to evolve and get better and mature and grow and and become more performant, and eventually, uh, you know, one day the telephone was better than the telegraph. And all of these telegraph companies were basically sunk. Um, you've seen similar stories about innovative disruptions in other fields. Another great example is Wikipedia, right? And Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, Encyclopedia Britannica used to be the default encyclopedia for in information of all human knowledge. And when Wikipedia was, was surfacing, it was almost laughable that they had this giant endeavor to be this, the world's encyclopedia. And yet, in 2012, Encyclopedia Britannica pretty much closed its doors on their shop and, and went out of business. Another example um, is, is Blockbuster and Netflix. Blockbuster is, the, uh, is like a video rental store. You go in and you, you select the, the movie, whether it's DVD or VHS cassette, and then you, you rent it and you bring it home. And Netflix is a streaming video service, right? That when it was first kind of announced, people thought, oh, you know, video streaming and it's going to buffer, it's never going to load, it's never going to work. And then all of a sudden, you know, it worked, Blockbuster was gone, and, and everybody was using Netflix. There's a guy named Clayton Christensen who, who has a framework for innovation. Uh, and he, he describes this in The Innovator's Dilemma. And this, this kind of crazy chart of graphs here is something I want to talk through. Um, the top, the the top line here, progress due to sustaining innovations, 
is contrasted with progress due to disruptive innovations. And you can see at the start, the, the performance and you know, the, the general quality of something uh, that's developing is much lower than something that is already mainstream. But the disruptive innovation continues to get better and better and better and eventually overtakes the mainstream technology. The problem is, now, now these mainstream technology companies are aware of developing innovations. You know, they're, they're aware that things are happening, um, but they can't really act on it because they're too busy trying to stay competitive in the current market. You have to come out with new features uh, and improve your existing product line because you have customers and stakeholders who expect more revenue and, and better sales. And so you, you, you don't really have time to sink a bunch of energy into research and development on a completely new technology. Um, it's kind of like documentation. Imagine documentation as a company. You're struggling to keep up, to make deadlines. You don't have a lot of time to just say, okay, we're gonna take a couple people and you guys go see if you can find a better way of doing things and come back in a few months. Uh, it's really not something that, that big companies can do. But the disruptive innovation companies, they're at a, at a different market value. They don't have to meet all these expectations. They can operate under the radar um, and, and just keep getting better and better. So if we look at the, the kind of innovations that have taken place, just trying to get a, a survey of them, um, there are many, there are many. And I, I came up with different lists. Um, everything from HTML5 to uh, REST APIs, YouTube, jQuery, Bootstrap, big data, social networks, you know, there's just the amount of new technology that comes on the scene is unprecedented. And it's not just technology, you know, it's also ideas. Uh, so there's lots of ideas that maybe come about because of the technology or maybe develop on their own. Uh, things such as crowdsourcing, um, even agile, gamification. I actually used to work for a gamification company. Uh, it was the idea that you want to make, you want to make um, an application fun, like a game, even though it's not a real game. Uh, you're actually working. Uh, you give people rewards, points, you incentivize them. This is one of the things Stack Overflow does. They, they give people points for you know, answering questions and so forth. Um, the Clue Train Manifesto is a huge kind of idea where people said, you know, this, this paradigm of businesses speaking to customers and their marketing speak is, is over. Now uh, users communicate with other users. They tell each other what to buy. They, they interact. And if, co if companies want to you know, talk with users, they need to come down and interact on the same level and the same transparent, open, honest speak. So there's a lot of different innovations. And, and with TechCom, there's been some innovations as well. Minimalism, uh, task-based documentation. Now, I don't think these are new, but I'm just trying to rack my brain for what are, what are the kind of new ideas that have come on the scene and changed the way people do documentation. Content strategy, single sourcing. Um, so, as I, I came up with a lot of lists and I put all these lists on my blog and uh, I was just kind of brainstorming, you know, what are the, what are the big innovations? And uh, Mark Baker responded and said, you know, the only really significant innovation is this one. Uh, before the web, technical writers distributed information to people. Now, everyone with the web, everyone is a technical writer, and information distribution looks like 
this. It's more like spaghetti. People interact with each other and share information. And essentially, everybody is a technical writer. What do we mean, what do we mean by everybody being a technical writer? Here's a great example. Uh, you have a question on something, you Google it, and some guy on Stack Overflow has an answer for you and provides that answer. Maybe he, he responds to your question, or maybe you're just Googling and you find a response that he or she has already provided. But this person who, of course, doesn't have the word technical writer in his title, uh, he's a developer of some kind, um, he is doing the same role of technical writing. Uh, he's, he's performing the same role as a technical writer. He's explaining technical concepts, tasks, uh, in an accessible informational way to people looking for inf information. And this is essentially what the web has done. Uh, everybody who writes a tip on how you do something with some tool, uh, puts it online in a searchable way, is acting as a technical writer. So if everybody is a technical writer, what does that mean? I, I asked Mark, well, why do I still have a job as a technical writer? And if you look at the trends about on the indeed.com, for example, just searching for instances of the word technical writer, it has gone down significantly. Um, and, and surveys about, uh, that the STC conducts will tell you that the number of jobs for a technical writer in 2008 was about the same as in 2013, uh, at least in the United States. And that's, that number is about 47,000. And yet the, the amount of technology companies uh, between 2008 and 2013 has definitely not stayed the same. Uh, so there's, there's these, these new roles of technical writing are being filled largely by lots of people who aren't technical writers. So one question is how do we stay relevant? You know, how do we stay relevant as, this, as an important role uh, of somebody distributing information? There's a guy um, who wrote a really interesting article about why Microsoft has kind of failed in the last five great innovations. He said, if you look at the kind of survey over the last decade or so, the big innovations that have happened, Microsoft has, has failed in each one of them. Search, Google took. Mobile, Apple dominates. Uh, the cloud, Amazon um, is, is the major player. Social, Facebook. Uh, open source, there's all kinds of technologies from Linux, MySQL, WordPress, and, and Microsoft is just not there. So what, uh, what can we learn from Microsoft's failure? You know, is, are we as technical writers doomed to follow a similar kind of path of decline where we're no longer relevant and we're just this kind of relic of the past? Um, there's a lot of dilemmas with being innovative. You know, there's, there's, on the one hand, you, you do have this pressure to not be this old Microsoft technology that's sort of in the past. On the other hand, to really make an innovative leap forward, it's hard. Um, you've, got, you've got at least four big questions to answer. One is, how are you going to continue to operate at a sub-performing level um, while you do research and development? If, you, if you're working at your current role, trying to develop an innovative solution, uh, your boss, your project managers, they'll still expect documentation at the regular deadlines. You usually don't have free time, so to speak, to do R&D at any company. They're not going to put R&D into the docs usually. So this is almost something you have to embark on your own. Another question is what you do with mountains of legacy content. 
uh, let's say you're not at a startup, you're at a big company, and they spent thousands of dollars investing in certain technologies that they put in place, and there's thousands of pages of documentation in a specific format and structure, and you want to come along with a new idea, uh, good luck. You know, this is moving a, a, a giant ship in a different course. It's not going to be easy. Another problem with innovation is that, for the most part, technical writers don't have the engineering background to really execute on any kind of technical idea. Uh, let's say you want to develop a new platform. Well, if you're a programmer, great. If you're not, mm, it's a lot harder. Um, so you're kind of, you're kind of stuck in, in a difficult position. And then finally, what happens if you decide to sink a lot of time and investment in a technology that's obscure, that not a lot of people know or care about, companies aren't demanding? Um, so there's a lot of dilemmas with, with even trying to take the step toward innovation. And I definitely felt this sort of pressure. Uh, I was at a conference once in San Jose. This was the Content Strategy Conference. I was having a conversation with uh, somebody who was a content strategist from Canada working for eBay. And she said, you know, uh, Tom, I, I really would have expected a professional like you to be using Dita. <laughs> and I wasn't using it at the time and I didn't really have a good response. I just kind of said, well, uh, yeah, no, we're using Drupal. Um, and, and I'm writing in Google Docs uh, in Markdown and pushing it that way. And that was kind of how it ended. But there's this tremendous pressure uh, to conform to the mainstream. And maybe it's not Dita, maybe it's uh, some other XML language or, or some other tool. Um, at least in the States, there's a lot of hype and buzz and talk about Dita. And so for my first pilot at, at my company, I decided to take a step towards, towards Dita and XML um, and, and set about converting one project over to Dita as well as creating a bunch of best practices for my team, other two writers. I was gonna kind of pave the way and show them, hey, you know, this is, this is, the, this is how a lot of people are doing tech docs, and so here's, a, here's one way we could do it. Uh, and I ran into a lot of limitations. Um, uh, I wanted to do different things. I wanted to put a mini table of contents uh, on a topic, or I wanted to, um, combine a lot of topics. I wanted to do filtering, uh, dynamic filtering of content so that you know, a user goes in, they choose their role, and the content changes to what they, what they see. Um, I wanted to show and hide sections. And I, each time to try to do these uh, things using uh, Oxygen XML's Web Help plugin with, with uh, Dita XML required a tremendous amount of hacking. Uh, trying to figure out what the element names are, how they get converted, where to put certain scripts in the open in the uh, web help plugin files, you know whether they worked or not in, in, in the browser and, and, and the straw that broke my back or the camel's back, whatever, was the navigation tabs. Um, one of my products had a lot of different languages or at least several different languages, and it, we wanted to provide code samples in each of the different languages. And I didn't want to have a separate output for each of these different deliverables. I wanted to have something like you see here from Twilio, uh, Twilio's docs, where they have cool little navigation tabs, and you pop in and you get the language you want. And this, this interface is so good that when you go to another page, it remembers your selection. So it sets a cookie and, and totally remembers you. I, could, uh, I just kind of lost patience doing this, trying to, to figure out a way to, to do it 
using Dita XML uh, with the Oxygen plugin. Um, and I started to get this sense that maybe, uh, maybe there was two parallel or two independent tracks. You know, on the one hand, you have the web, and on the other hand, you have TechCom with its track um, um, puttering away in, in, in XML and other technologies while the web goes forward in, in HTML and JavaScript. Um, and one of these trends that, that I think is, is pretty prominent is REST APIs. They, they have grown tremendously on the web. And previously, um, when you make a call with a REST API, the kind of information you get back uh, used to be maybe in XML format or JSON format. But in the last five to seven years, XML has kind of gone away as the default server-to-server -server communication protocol that, that is returned with these API requests. And now pretty much most REST APIs return information in JSON format which is JavaScript object notation and very easy to parse using JavaScript and display it in an HTML page. Um, and the more I kind of explored different, different ways of publishing, the more I kept running into this, this theme that uh, web developers, they like, they like HTML, they like JavaScript, they like jQuery and CSS. They use uh, things like Ajax or, or Less, which is a, a style programming element. Um, they use PHP or Ruby on Rails. You know, uh, there's, I have a couple of colleagues, and they tell me similar stories. One, one colleague says, um, not, not colleagues at my company, just professionals in the area. He says he was trying to figure out a doc solution, and uh, <clears throat> he, he mentioned the idea of giving the developers XML for this doc portal solution, and he said they looked at him with a scrunched up face like he had just offered him a bag of wet socks or something. Um, another guy, he was developing a doc portal, so he was working with UX designers, and he said that uh, they, they made him convert all his XML into JSON in order to feed it into their system. So this guy was actually smart enough to figure out how to do that, and he built his own uh, style sheets to transform it and all, but uh, I think, um, in order to publish on the web, uh, I felt like I was going against the grain by not using web tools. So I had this turning point where I decided uh, the web is really where a lot of the innovation is happening. Um, it's not really happening so much in TechCom. It's happening all over the web. And to keep up with this innovation that's happening on the web, uh, TechCom, I, other tech writers, would do best to use the same tools of, of web innovation that other web developers are using. So I want to talk about some of these different tools. You know, what are these people using? And one of my, one of the absolute most interesting tools um, is GitHub and open source. GitHub is actually based in San Francisco and I've been to their office. It's a, it's a big building and there are you know, three to 400 employees. It's a, it's a sizable company, but it's growing pretty rapidly. And GitHub is basically an online repository where people can share code. It's mainly used by developers to share code for plugins, other software. Um, they collaborate, uh, they version the content, they distribute it this way. Um, and you know, it works very similar to maybe Mercurial, Perforce, other revision control repositories, but it's the de facto one online. It's what people use for open source projects primarily. And, and other projects. I was talking in a podcast with a guy named Joe, Joe Mullen, who had been a, a, an API doc writer for seven years at Google, 
Um, so he had a ton of experience working in this space. And during this podcast, he told me, GitHub, in my humble opinion, is one of the most revolutionary things that has happened to software in 20 years. And this caught me by surprise. I was like, really? Uh, thought this was just revision control software, you know, the, like a simple way for developers to version and, you know, check in content and, and share it. Uh, but he, he said, no, 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 it's much, much more than that. See, when you check out, when you, when you clone somebody's GitHub repository onto your local machine, uh, you can then continue to pull updates when the original author makes updates to their repository. So the effect is that you have a bunch of living code samples all distributed on people's local machines that can be updated optionally by each person who clones that repository. And not only can you clone a repository, in other words, duplicate it, you can also fork it. So you, you, you clone it and you decide, you know what, I want to add a certain feature. So you fork it and then you release your, your fork and then other people do the same thing. So in a sense, you, you have this phenomenon that's called social coding, where people are they're forking, they're sharing, they're reincorporating code. It's not these static silos of content uh, that only exist in, in people, on people's machines. They're, they're online and a lot of the code bases are, are highly similar. Um, and it's, it's, it's been huge in the software development world for how people uh, interact and how they push their content forward and move it to the next level. What, what if help were to follow a similar way? I mean, if something is so revolutionary in the software industry that somebody remarks that it's, it's the most revolutionary thing that's happened in 20 years, whether that's true or not, you know, that's another question, but it's definitely an impression, why not try to see how that same revolution pl can play out in the tech comm space? You know, if everybody's help were in an open GitHub repository, instead of having all these isolated people, you might suddenly have lots of different people from different companies contributing to similar repositories in order to manage their help frameworks and sharing and building. You know, let's say um, you push out some GitHub repository You've taken it as far as you can. Another person comes along and says, you know what, uh, developer at my company wants feature X and adds it there and suddenly you can pull down that new feature and continue building as well. So you have lots of uh, clones and, and different branches of similar code, but people aren't starting from scratch. They're starting from a point and, and building on with it. So this leads to another question. Why not treat documentation as code? And why not write documentation like a developer? Instead of a WYSIWYG tool, um, work in text files uh, using a text editor such as Sublime Text. Uh, in order to build your help, instead of you know, clicking buttons in your help interface, um, you can have build scripts where you upload content into a server and there are build scripts that kick in and trigger and actually just compile your help there. In order to collaborate and share files, you know, why not use a similar workflow that developers use to collaborate and share files, which are just as complex, if not like infinitely more complex than basic content. Um, and then pushing your content live when you're ready to move it up to the server. You know, there's no need to open up FTP. You just open up your terminal, punch a couple of commands, and bam, all these text files are made live. Um, in, in, 
as kind of a reinforcement to this documentation as code, this whole slide deck is actually just HTML5. Uh, it's, it's using something called Reveal.js, which is just a JavaScript library that somebody created, put it on GitHub, and you basically just add section elements with H3 tags, and you basically have a slideshow. The, the JavaScript library takes it, and I've actually uploaded this slideshow in a GitHub repository. Um, so you can go to it online right there and see the exact same thing you're seeing now. And in my experience, working in these text file formats, for some reason, is, is a lot more satisfying. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things I absolutely hate are interfaces that try to keep the code from you. For example, Confluence. Uh, if you ever try to work with their rich text editor, it's an experience in frustration. You really, you really have to go into the source code and fix things constantly. Um, and it just gives you more freedom and flexibility to have the code right there with you. Well, another kind of disruptive technology or revolutionary sort of technology that's cropping up that, that builds on these, uh, on working in the code and using these GitHub repositories is something called static site generators. <clears throat> now this is maybe something you've heard of, maybe something you haven't. Um, but if you go to a site called staticgen.com, you can see that there are at least 50 different static site generators. And what these static site generators are, are code bases that basically allow you to build a website uh, on your local machine. It compiles everything on your local machine. Um, they're, they're lightweight and they're a, a resistance against the database model. People decided that these solutions, WordPress, Drupal, Joomla, that all have you know, MySQL databases and you have to have uh, um, Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP on your server in order to support them and you have to have the database configured just right. Uh, they said, you know what, that's all unnecessary. You don't have to serve up content dynamically. Uh, you just build the site and you push it out to your server and you have static files that run extremely fast, that load under a second. Um, you author in Markdown and have these static site generators transform the Markdown into HTML. You have complete flexibility. You want to put JavaScript in there? Go for it. You know, it's not going to choke. You want to do anything, create your own layouts. You have complete transparency into it. Uh, because you don't have a database, they're absolutely secure, can be moved from any server to any server, and um, they're kind of suitable for hackers, as they say. Uh, the, the, the most popular platform, the most popular static site generator, calls itself Blogging for Hackers. Um, at any rate, this one is called Jekyll. There's a lot of different ones. You may have heard of Middleman, Wintersmith, Octopress. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of like different, different flavors of apples. Fuji, Delicious, Roman. You know, they're, they're very similar, but, uh, but different in some ways. Uh, Jekyll actually uses a, a templating language called Liquid um, that allows you to do more sophisticated things. Let's say you want to put an, an if-else statement or some kind of loop in there, you, you can do that. And the way you work with these generators is that you open up your, your text editor, like Sublime Text, uh, you put a couple of front matter tags at the top, such as title and link, and then you just write the rest in Markdown. And every time, at least with Jekyll, that you save the site, uh, it, it 
triggers a build and you have your browser open in another window and this build regenerates so you can see uh, the change and how it looks in the browser. So as you're coding along, you may think, oh, did I get this markdown table syntax right? You, know, you hit save and then you refresh the browser and within a second and a half, you see the exact site built there on your local machine. Gives you a little live pre preview server right there. So that's kind of the way you mitigate between the text editor and an interface. Um, you're not, you don't have a WYSIWYG editor, but you have the pre-built site in another browser that you just check every now and then to make sure that it looks as you, as you expect. Uh, and actually took uh, Jekyll. So in my second experiment um, after Dita, I decided to, to try a web method using Jekyll, right? a, a tech platform that few people were really using, um, and just built a, a, a documentation theme um, using Bootstrap, um, using jQuery and other HTML, and building something that could allow people to navigate in a similar way as other sites. Um, and I think that, that uh, whether, whether it's Jekyll or some other static site generator, I think these static site generators, if you're publishing on the web, are a huge technology to watch. Um, and there's five reasons why I think these could be a major disruptive kind of technology. Um, one is they fit perfectly into web technologies. Uh, they, they consume CSS, HTML, and JavaScript as the core language on every page. So if you are familiar with these, you, the sky's your limit. You can do anything with them. Um, if you want to use a, a something called Bootstrap, which is a, a web framework that most UX designers are very familiar with, or another one called Zurb, found, Zurb Foundation, uh, you can easily incorporate code. In fact, for my theme, I, I took a, a template from Bootstrap and just pasted it into a layout, and you've suddenly got access to all kinds of uh, frameworks that have already been built. For example, if you uh, make the browser smaller, um, it, it displays responsively on different devices. You get the, the menu collapsing into what's called a hamburger, you know, so that it displays well on mobile. Um, so you can get all that just by tapping into some of these web frameworks. You, know, you, don't have to, you don't have to go to great lengths to try to be a web designer because so many components are pre-built. Uh, jQuery is another huge one. They're pretty much plugins that people build with jQuery for anything. Um, and a table of contents, uh, navigation, any kind of interaction, filtering, animating, uh, selecting, you can do it with jQuery. And, and using a static site generator, it, it, you can put jQuery anywhere without any technical issue at all. Another huge benefit is Markdown. A lot of these, these static site generators process Markdown, I'd say most of them. Um, and Markdown is a simplified way of writing HTML. It's like a wiki syntax. If you want to have a bulleted list, instead of writing UL and LI tags around everything, you put a little asterisk uh, beside the bullet that you want. Or if you want a heading, you know, instead of H2 or H3, you put a pound sign to the left of the content. The result is that it's very readable. You, you, you don't get lost in the tags. Whereas if you have XML open or even HTML, it's hard to just read it and, and see it for what it is. Um, but Markdown is extremely popular. Uh, there, are, there are tons of different Markdown editors that allow you to kind of preview your content in another pane. Uh, but it's, a, it's basically the developer's preferred way to write content. And in the API documentation space, 
when you're trying to get developers to contribute or you want to expand your horizons and let other people contribute, giving them something simple like Markdown is a huge uh, way to lower that barrier. Um, probably one of the most significant benefits is that the UX people, people who know front-end design, uh, are eager and enthusiastic to help out when you have a platform that leverages web technologies and uses all these similar web tools that they use. Um, at my work, we had a UX guy who we kind of brought in to see what he could do or see if he wanted to help out. And he was incredibly enthusiastic. He loved Jekyll. He'd never, he'd never used Jekyll. He learned it like over the weekend, converting his own blog to Jekyll and then uh, doing some really fancy stuff that I couldn't do. Um, he was using all kinds of tools that only, only he was really familiar with. Tools like uh, Esprima, Estraverse, Grunt, Parse, uh, Gulp, all these different web tools. He just leveraged it to basically process documentation that we'd written in, in some JSON file and move it into Jekyll. Um, so you can, if you're building a doc portal, you're building some other you know, solution that requires front-end design, you want to get a UX person to help, um, this is really a platform that fits into them. Another huge benefit is that they scale infinitely. You know, you're not, you're not uh, getting prices per seat. It's, it's all open source. Um, you, if you need 100 authors, they just plug in and you can get a text editor for free and just start, start contributing. Um, they can upload their, their content into a, some GitHub-like repository and you're not really locked into budget constraints, which, which ties back to this concept of everybody being a technical writer, right? In a corporate context, you want to have people contribute from different groups. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, do you want to force them to learn XML? You want to you know, buy a fancy tool that tries to simplify it in a word interface and you, you, have to you have to pay per seat for every sort of license and then distribute it? Or do you just say, look, open a text editor, put a couple front matter tags, write a markdown, upload it to this repository? Um, there's one thing I've, I've kind of realized in doing documentation. It's that one person writing from one perspective in one company, especially if you're an outsider to the actual business scenario, can never cover all the information needs of every user. So when you really want to scale something, you know, like a Wikipedia type project, you, you need to look at ways to allow lots of different inputs. Another fascinating thing with, with uh, static site generators is that they lead to something called content APIs. So you, 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 this graph shows the growth in REST APIs, right, which programmers use for different code components, but why not deliver content in the same way? It's actually a site called healthcare.gov that, that has um, as, its, as its central model this idea of a content API. The developers conceive of this notion of this central site where people go to get information, but all these other subsites in different states and areas can pull from the same content repository and embed it directly on their page. So with help, you could do something similar. Instead of delivering just help files or sending a text file for somebody to incorporate into an application, you could instead deliver um, an API and then people actually pull it in. And um, as an example, I, I, I did one where I created um, a template in Jekyll that allowed content to be pushed into a JSON structure, uploaded it to a repository, and said, okay, developers, all you have to do is basically uh, pull in the different elements you need for the different components. 
so this is one way that you can kind of go beyond the, the, the help side and really get help in a, in a place where the users want it, need it, and may, may read it. Fourth reason is um, you ha I mentioned flexibility, and this is something that's a little more, uh, uh, it's easier to see once you get into it, but you, you're not limited to just HTML. You, you can push content into any format, you know, beyond HTML, you can push it into maybe a, a CSV format or a JSON format, or you, let's say you have a specific API format uh, that you've developed. You push content through it, and basically you use uh, these things called for loops, and it, Jekyll iterates through every item in your page and takes and pushes different uh, keyword, uh, things tagged with certain keywords into the template you define. And I've got a lot of instructions about how to do this on my blog, so I'm kind of just giving you an overview and a taste of how it works. And finally, the fifth reason why I think static site generators could be a disruptive technology is that they leverage the open source model. I pushed out the Jekyll documentation theme onto a GitHub repository, and I've already got quite a few people interested. People write me and say, you know, hey, I, I want to contribute to this. I, 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 they actually make requests. Let's go in this direction. Or, you know, why are you doing things like, like this here, why don't you just use a CDN instead of making it all local, things like that. So you've got this tremendous momentum and the ability to really take off in a, in a way that could be powerful. Now my larger point is not so much that I think you know static site generators are, are the cat's pajamas here and everybody should use them, but my larger point is, you know, maybe not Jekyll, but look outside the TechCom bubble. Because the TechCom bubble is small, the world of the vendors and the, the methods and the approaches is small, but the web is huge. And there, for every you know, techcom platform, there are at least 100 different ways of doing it on the web. And the web is where the momentum is. It's where the innovation is really happening. And if you want to plug into that, um, use different web technologies. So in closing, I just want to leave you with three strategies for innovation. Uh, the first is, as I have been repeating, look outside the techcom bubble. The second, ride the innovation of the web. Look at what people are doing on the web for ways to be innovative and in, in what they're doing. And then share with the community around you, whether it's through blogs, through GitHub repositories, through presentations, but that, that, uh, the sharing feeds into the momentum of the web and carries it forward. So thank you. Um, this has uh, been an exciting topic, and uh, I invite you to ask questions. I probably am out of time, uh, but if you want to come up to me afterwards um, and ask questions or anytime, I'd be happy to, and you can contact me through any of those methods. So thank you.